MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to Episode 7 of the MSW Book Club. We're covering Mary Trump's latest book, The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal. Uh, joining me today is Dana Goldberg, our fabulous co-host. Hello. Hello. It's good to be back. And I'm so excited for this episode because we have our dear friend with us. Yes. Say hello, Mary. Hello, Mary. <laughs> Sorry, that was such a bad Grace Burns joke for those youngins who have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, I mean, Gracie Ellen, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be really fun. And uh, basically what happens is we've gone over in the last six episodes, we've gone over the book chapter by chapter, two chapters at a time in in most cases, except for chapter eight, which is a really good one. Uh, They're all very good, though. But uh, today we're going to be taking our patrons questions for Mary Trump about the book, uh, The Reckoning. If you haven't picked it up, you must. You absolutely must. Uh, so hit pause now and we'll wait. Okay. Thank you for coming back. Quick and read. now that you have the book. <laughs> it is a quick read. <laughs> it is. It really is. All right. Well, I'm going to kick this off because we asked our patrons, what's your burning question for Mary Trump? And the first question is from Anonymous, no pronouns given. Did Donald brag about his being a Russian asset prior to the debates with Hillary Clinton? Um. Well, I'd like to think that if he did, whoever was in his company would have mentioned that. Certainly not in my presence, Um, because, again, if he had, I would have reported him. Um, But I wasn't in his presence. Thankfully, unfortunately, I don't know. Something about both. I think we'll go with both. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I'm (laughs) sure there are plenty of people who knew that and uh, said nothing because they're more loyal to him than they are to our country, sadly. Well, we do know that he certainly talked about how he wanted Putin to be his best friend and, and going all the way back to the Miss Universe pageant. And, and and Mary, you actually talked in your first book quite extensively about what it is that Donald admires so much about about Putin. And, and you mentioned it uh, uh, briefly in, in, in The Reckoning as well. Can you maybe talk a little bit about so we can tie this into to, you know, the discussion of the book, particularly talking about, you know, why Donald behaves the way that he does? What is it in in Putin that he saw? Well, Donald is a very weak man who knows that he needs to be strong in order to be acceptable. And again, he has an audience of one. His audience of one is my grandfather. Even though the guy's been dead for 20 years, he's still Donald's audience of one. Um, And I think people like Putin are stand-ins for my grandfather. And because Donald doesn't really understand how these relationships work, 
He seems to think that all he needs in order to be strong is to be in their presence and to do their bidding, not knowing that that makes him look really weak. So it's almost he just thinks that they confer his strength upon their strength upon him um, by proximity, by virtue of proximity. Um, so I think it's that. I think with certainly with somebody like Putin, it's complicated because, um, again, not speaking from personal experience, just speaking from information we've all been exposed to uh, to one degree or another over the last several years. Uh, there are definitely business dealings with Russian oligarchs and Russian oligarchs are owned by Vladimir Putin. And then there's allegedly a lot of money laundering going on through uh, condo sales, et cetera, both in New York and Florida. So uh, I, I would not be surprised if there were also some kind of compromise, which, well, I mean, I think we're pretty sure that there is, but uh, it, it, his uh, not so subtle Freudian slip um, being some indication that uh, some of the things alleged in the Steele memo are indeed uh, true. Well, not to mention, I mean, I, Donald doesn't necessarily have to say he's a Russian asset or he's indebted to Russia when his son Eric is going on national TV talking about where all their money comes from. Right, exactly. And and I think that's been the case with Donald all along, you know, especially when people ask about his diagnosis, quite honestly, besides the fact that it's technically impossible for me or any other psychologist who is does not have him as a patient. It is technically impossible for us to diagnose him. Who cares? Just look at what he does. Look at how he acts. And um, we know that in 2016, the Republican platform was changed uh, to preference Russia. And everything Donald did during that horrific four years of his administration was to the benefit of uh, Russia in general and Vladimir Putin in particular. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all right. This next question I've read, and I think it is in, very profound, and I think you'll have uh, a fantastic answer, to be honest, because it's sort of your specialty with this. This is from Ricardo, pronouns he, him. He said, many of us have family members who have done bad things or perhaps have a truly evil streak. Is it, is it natural to worry that we have that within ourselves? How can we be sure that we haven't inherited turpitude? Great question. Um, well, I think... Let's put it this way. I think that uh, human beings are capable of a vast range of emotions and behaviors. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I think under certain circumstances, anybody could commit acts of violence. Um, you know, for example, if I have a child and I could totally see if uh, if anybody did anything to her in a particular way, there, there would be I would I would stop at nothing to protect. Absolutely. Her. That doesn't mean I'm an evil person. It just means that, you know, that's my instinct. That's what matters to me. So I think, you know, uh, I'll just put it in personal terms just because I can't speak for everybody else's experience, but I I'm not sure how old I am. I think I'm 56. <laughs> um, I, after the last four years, I think I also might be 92, whatever. Um, I have never done anything evil. And I'm so I'm pretty sure I'm not capable. I don't think that everybody's capable of evil by any stretch. I think it, evil is on a, the extreme end of the uh, spectrum. Um, I'm not entirely sure what's on the opposite end of the spectrum from evil. But, you know, we're talking about a very, very 
a tiny percentage. Of, so let's put it in these terms. Um, I think Betty White is actually, Betty maybe, White is on the Betty opposite White. side of the spectrum from evil. Maybe. Um, <laughs> and, um, but that's, I think that's it. I think she's cornered the market. Um, 100%. But, you know, sociopathy isn't rare. Of approximately 3% of the adult population or the American population uh, or global population probably uh, are sociopaths. But it, that that could be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Being a sociopath doesn't mean that you're Ted Bundy. So it's, an, right. it's a much, much, much smaller. So I think that kind of thing is rare. Um, and again, it, it, it would, it would um, manifest itself early on in life. And it's certainly not something you could hide from yourself. So I think you're fine. Um, if you are worried, just, uh, you know, work to get out the vote in 2022 <laughs> and 2024. That's, that's how you can make That's what it. we need to do to make ourselves, you know, to defend ourselves against our worst impulses. Right. To insulate ourselves against uh, the future problems as well. Um, next question, uh, Mary, and this is um, that ties into the book, because in the book you talk repeatedly about and, and pretty much the crux of the book is that without being able to address our past traumas as a nation, without addressing our history and without looking at that, we are we can't kind of move forward and heal from current uh, trauma or more recent trauma. And that's true for individuals and societies. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we have seen an immense attempt to rewrite history, whitewash what happened during the insurrection. And this question from Clancy, a Jewish great grandma, says, uh, is it mass hysteria that's causing so many people to follow QAnon? She says, I figure it's just pure hate that adds to their delusional behavior. She says she's 75 and she's scared. And uh, I think that this kind of, f f you know, falls under that re that mass delusion rewriting of history what is it about americans now in insurrection time and in the past you know reconstruction backslide etc that causes uh white americans to 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 sort of ignore truth and facts and history and just move forward in this toxic way yeah it's a good question and it's related to the last question you know human beings exist on a continuum um you know, I, I can, and, and we're susceptible in different ways as well. So part of the problem with allowing somebody like Donald into a position of power is that a lot of people are followers. Um, doesn't mean they're bad people, but they are easily led. Uh, they want to be, uh, you know, the term is authoritarian personality, and that's not the, the the authoritarian leader. That's the person who follows the authoritarian leader. And what that means basically is these are people who like the status quo. Their change scares them. Um, they like homogeneity. So uh, they are threatened in ways by uh, diversity and the increasing um, diversity of this country. They also, in an us versus them dichotomy, they want to be us. So when somebody like Donald is in charge, he hits all of those, he checks off all of those boxes, right? And then in, if you combine that with the fact that he also gave anybody who wanted this permission, permission to be their utterly worst selves, and he validated that he represented it. So when you um, are 
in that group of, you know, when that, when you're in the middle of that Venn diagram, right, you are definitely more willing to uh, go farther. And, and again, these are things that happen incrementally, you know, nobody like it, it, it let's say, um, for example, COVID happened during the 2016 campaign. Nobody would have gone to Donald's rallies, you know, nobody was going to say, oh, sure, I'm ready to put my life and the life of my family at risk to go see this guy. You know, uh, so these these are these are microaggressions that kind of soften the ground over time to the point where people, you know, first it was just to li- willing to listen to the violent rhetoric and then it, and, and kind of liking it. And then then it's like, OK, I will give my life for you. So. I think that's that's similar with QAnon. It happened. Fox News has been spouting propaganda and making people stupider and more ignorant for the last quarter of a century. So mm-hmm. QAnon, it's not surprising that people would be uh, going even farther because they've been going down that path for so long. Because even Fox News is getting increasingly radical in, in it, the way it um presents things. I mean, it's a propaganda network and they all they do is lie. Tucker, Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingraham are vaccinated. Let's be clear. And every night they lie to people about that and they tell people to put their to, to risk their lives for what exactly. Um, so it doesn't surprise me. It is dangerous, of course. Um, and I think what needs to happen is the, uh, and I've said this before, the Democratic Party needs to start acting like it's the majority because it is. Absolutely. And we make people's lives better. We start educating them. You know, that's that's that is a long term project. Making people's lives better could happen tomorrow if it weren't for mansion and cinema. Um, But over the long term, we need uh, we need to teach people critical thinking skills, media literacy and civics in a way that actually matters to their lives. Absolutely. Well said. Um, Our next question is from Carrie Maxwell. Her pronouns are she and her. And Carrie would like to know. During this process, what was the most interesting and or shocking thing that you discovered during your research process for The Reckoning? Um, thank you for asking that. Um, as you can perhaps imagine, this is a very, very, very difficult book to write. Um, and one of the things that made it difficult is most of this stuff was stuff that I had known. But because I had the luxury of my whiteness, I'd forgotten it. So right. that depressed me, actually. So there, there were two things uh, that were kind of related. Um, the first was that Gerald Ford pardoned Robert E. Lee, um, which, which was such a stunning act of cynicism that I, I, it actually knocked the wind out of me when I came across that. Um, because basically what, what that did was you know codify the lost cause, which was that uh, this the Civil War was not fought over slavery, and that the American South was this noble culture when in fact they were murderous domestic terrorists. And uh, Lee was the greatest traitor to this country who ever lived. He owned and tortured other human beings, and he was directly responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of people. The only punishment he suffered in his lifetime is that the right to vote was taken away from him. Mm. Ford also restored that posthumously, the right to vote, sorry, and the right to hold office. 
Um, you know, luckily, as far as I know, you can't do that when you're dead, although I'm sure the Republicans will try to change that. Um, the second thing was uh, in a in a another incredibly not, I don't think cynical, but incredibly naive, quintessentially Democratic move. Jimmy Carter pardoned Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederacy, who right. only served two years in prison, uh, which is fascinating considering I don't believe that's the punishment for treason. Um, and I'm <laughs> guessing that Carter did it. You know, in the same way that um, institutionalist Democrats continue to pander to the right uh, in what in the hopes that they'll appease them and get some Republicans to vote for them. So both things were were despicable. And I just, you know, I just thought of all of the ancestors of slaves and um, not ancestors, other way around. You know, people descended from slaves, people who had uh, ancestors who fought for the Union and died or were maimed because of that war. And it just was another breathtaking example of how not at all into account the feelings of Black Americans are taken. It's just, it, it blew my mind. Yeah, Um Thanks for answering that question. And, and thanks for for that question, too, because, you know, you brought up the, the great point, the luxury of forgetting the luxury of being able to forget because of your whiteness. And um, I think that's an important uh, uh, another important theme in the book. There are several. Um, next up is a, a question from average Florida grandma, pronouns she and her. Uh, as a psychologist and a relative of the family, can we just, <laughs> I don't know if I want you to be known as the family. Yeah. Um, where do you see the siblings and M Melania in five to 10 years? Still in politics, for example, assuming Donnie is, you know, not in prison or dead. <laughs> well, that is the hope. I, I think that as soon as Barron turns 18, um, Melania will be out of there. I'm not sure why she's waiting so long, but, um, you know, is clearly there's some kind of financial arrangement there. Um, and as for the rest of my cousins, I, I don't know. I, I think I have to be completely honest with you. I don't, I don't care. Um, because I find them, <laughs> no, I, honestly, I, I think, it, what I'm saying is I don't think we should because they are, they shockingly, this is actually shocking, but relevant. Um, you think Donald has nothing to offer? They don't even have what he has to offer. And this is, the, it's true. Like they don't have the money, not that he did, but he had, he had other people's money. They don't have anything that they don't get from him. They don't have the power that comes with it. They don't have the 40 years of being constantly in the media. Um, and Ivanka only appeals to the quote unquote, you know, right, uh, moderate end of the base. And Donnie is all in on the maggots. So they, they won't have the same kind of broad appeal. And the other thing too is, and this is important, uh, to realize at, at, at the top of the Republican Party, anybody who would want to uh, run for pre the presidency in 2024 does not have that one thing Donald has, charisma. 
Now, I don't get it. You don't get it. But he does have it. I mean, 74 million people voted for this monster, right? So I don't mean to say it was a bad question. It's not a bad question. It's just hard for me to care about what they do because I'm so, they they make me so cynical <laughs> about, you know, mm. human nature, but also about what's going on. I like, I'm convinced the reason we haven't heard at all from, um, Jared and Ivanka is because they think if they lay low long enough, they could just reemerge and be accepted back into New York high society. Um, right. I'm pretty sure. I mean, I don't know, never having been in New York high society, who knows, but I'm pretty sure New York won't have them back. So mm. I, my hope for them is a future of irrelevancy, preferably bankruptcy and even more preferably prison. But a lot of uh, things will have to fall into place for that to happen. I think that's a fair answer to that question, especially because if you can't see someone in your current vision, it's hard to care and see them in the future. Yeah. Um, I see Junior possibly in rehab, but otherwise that's about it. Um, <laughs> so that's just me. But it's also true that like one of the things that I'm most resentful of is that we have to have conversations about these people. We Because ha- Donald made them relevant. We have to, yeah. you know, we have to have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gaetz on our on our radar. Because that's the Republican Party we're dealing with now. Like they are the mainstream Republican Party right now, and we cannot ignore them, unfortunately. It is very unfortunate and a great point. Okay, this next question is from Cynthia Montgomery, uh, pronoun she. This is a little bit twofold. She wants to know how has the response to the book been for you, Mary? And she said reading it has been a roller coaster for her, leaving her with a sense that this is a genuine turning point, not only for her but hopefully for this country, she's wondering if others have given you insight about how they received your book and if it's what you hoped for, Mary. So she wants to know how this has been for you after you've written it. Oh, thank you. Um, well, first of all, I, I, I'm really grateful that you guys did this um, because I, you may be the only people who have read the book. <laughs> Stop it right now. Um, but, yeah, uh, I doubt that. <laughs> you know, um, it's been a very different experience in some ways because, you know, uh, I've been around the block kind of, um, but weirdly the same in that, you know, we're still in COVID. So I, I'm sort of having this experience in the privacy of my own living room. Um, and, I, you know, I'm not I'm a I'm a known quantity now, although I think the book w- did not conform to people's expectations of what it would be. Um Probably the only thing disappoint. well, one disappointing thing is that Tucker Carlson and Mark Levin are at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. I understand why, but it is deeply disturbing that a couple of fascists are selling so many books, even though, you know, the Republican Party might be buying them, but still uh, just, you know, representation matters. Um, the other thing that uh, th- there were only two major reviews, one in The Guardian and one in The Washington Post, and both of them were written by old white guys, um, neither of whom understood what I was trying to do with this book, and one of whom took it personally and uh, wrote what it what amounted to a personal attack on me. It was quite fascinating. And in the process, he kind of proved my point, but he also... Yeah, I was going to say, doesn't that illustrate the point of the yeah, book? but he also probably scared a lot of people away as well. So... Um, you know, I I hope to have uh, opportunities to um, 
you know, more opportunities like Allison, you and I did with books and books and, and uh, to, to help people understand what I was trying to accomplish because it is hard to take it. Um, you know, somebody asked me recently, don't, don't I think this is, this is, uh, this book is contributing to uh, the political divide. I'm like, no, <laughs> first of all, I had no expectation that anybody on the other side of the aisle would read this book. Um, but I did understand that even people on our side, some people on our side would have a very difficult time and would feel very defensive about it because it, you do have to have your own reckoning um, with our history and our place in it. So um, it is meant to be challenging. I found it really, I still find it challenging. So, uh, you know, I'm so, like, anybody tells me they enjoyed the book. I, I want to send them to therapy because I know it's not enjoyable <laughs> and I try, I'm in know? therapy. Perfect. Yeah. I'll just bring, <laughs> uh, I tried really hard to find humor, but there, I, which I think I did in the first book, there was none in this. And I, I know that made it a bit of a slog, so I apologize, but, uh, that's why I kept it short. Um, but you know, hopefully the roller coaster is worth it. Yeah, and I, I do think, as someone who has PTSD, uh, I th I imagine people who have PTSD or understand it, um, probably related to this book uh, incredibly well. I know that it it was difficult, um, and but also very relevant and relatable um, when talking about the parallels between societal trauma and individual trauma, and how it, sometimes it can be fast, and sometimes it can be slow mm. and drawn out, yep. and also interesting how it's hereditary. And that brings us to our next question from Jean Schapp. And this is a really great question. Thank you, Mary, she says, for this great and important book. I'm wondering, in your personal and professional opinion, if you think Donald suffered from an unattached mother, the wire monkey experiments by Harlow, etc., or if so much of his abhorrent behavior is genetic, the books uh, coming out all say he's like no other, extremely strange, as we all know by now, but we cannot normalize him he is missing some basic genetic bits in my view. Nature versus nurture, what do you think? Well, it's always impossible to say, but the, the developmental history stacks up. If you look at uh, my family, it is quite fascinating that um, on the one hand, all five siblings, uh, my dad, Donald, my other uncle, my two aunts, were destroyed human beings to one degree or another. However, they got their... I mean, they got there kind of the same way because they grew up in that horrible family. Um, but they were also, uh, most of them were totally unredeemable, which suggests there's something genetically going on, but then some of them weren't. Like I think given the chance, my dad would have been a decent human being. Um, but then, you know, you see my cousins and it, who knows, but I do think in this case, it's, it's more the experience. And um, I mean, I, I hate that experiment so much because it's just, it, it's so devastating, but it does illustrate the point. Um, having a cold, unaffectionate or unavailable mother is, is one of the worst experiences, if not the, the worst experience for a, a very, very young child, infant or toddler. So um, that, that's certainly in my view, was the most significant factor in Donald's early childhood. Um, the other thing though, yes, he's weird. He's unique in many ways. His idiosyncrasies are bizarre, but that's partially because they've been rewarded over time with attention. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, somebody like him, if he does something, it's, it's why he, he, 
he quote unquote loves his base. He probably thinks they're disgusting human beings, but they quote unquote love him. And that's all it really takes. So, and it will bring him attention to give rallies for them and be, be, and, you know, engage in performative cruelty for them. I think he's very much, and we've seen it, that child in him. It's, it's almost like that child that says, fuck, and someone laughs and he's like, oh, that got a response I wanted. I'm going to say fuck all the time. And except his version of fuck is a racist, misogynist phrase or, you know, uh, race baiting on the stage, but they're still his child. That's his child saying a bad word and getting positive reinforcement for it. And he's going to keep doing it. Yes. Yeah. He's going to keep doing it. Uh, this one is from Greg and this is a question mixed with some, uh, accolades, which are very much earned. He said, hello, I know this is probably best suited for your previous book, but it's a question that has been kept him profoundly curious for a very long time. He said, how is your relationship with your aunt Marianne? It seems like you had a good relationship in the recordings, but then you release them. And also you are very appropriately, including her in the family lawsuit. And Greg goes on to say, I'm rooting for you, both your success and that relationship, as well as your health of all kinds and your happiness. Finally, you fucking rock with much love, respect, and admiration, Greg. Oh, Greg, thank you. That's very kind of you. Um, however, I, I'm sorry to report <laughs> that I have no, I've had no communication with Marianne. What's interesting, though, is it stopped well before the book was published. Um, I'm not entirely sure why, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I mean, to me, the weirdest thing is that I wanted to have a relationship with her at all, but you know, families are weird and I don't have much of one. So, um, the fact that she was willing, um, like I had to forget a lot or, you know, ignore a lot in order to have that relationship, but it was gratifying in some ways, you know? Um, and then, you know, I realized that uh, the, the, the extent to which she had been complicit in these horrible things that were done to me and other people in my family. So, um, you know, I wanted to uh, have her be of use which is when I started recording. And then, um, I don't know, like she, she's moody, you know, and, uh, I guess I wasn't <laughs> paying her sufficient attention or something. So we just kind of drifted apart. And by then I didn't really care anymore. You know, I would have liked to get some more recordings of her quite honestly. Um, but it had nothing to do with the book. Um, although <laughs> clearly the book was the last nail in the coffin of that relationship. Well, uh May I go on record saying you are one of the best chosen family members <laughs> in, in history. So thank you for that. Um, finally, we have a question from Alexis, pronouns she and her. The book focuses on trauma surrounding white, black and white indigenous racism and persecution and the through lines to current events. Can you speak to the history of racism towards Asian Americans? Surely it similarly echoes in today's events, notably with the xenophobia toward China following the COVID-19 outbreak and the awful increase in violence towards Asian Americans. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I can speak to that with any more authority than anybody else. And, and uh, clearly uh, anti-Asian um, bias has been part of this country since before the Civil War, for sure. Uh, so, 
I, I would just, you know, look, I, I had to make choices about what I could cover reasonably in this, in this book. And I do feel that because of the unique place in uh, our history of uh, black Americans and uh, the ways in which white supremacy has been a, a thread, a consistent thread, and, and now is, is, is one of the um, major planks one of our political parties, I thought it was important to focus on that. And, and, you know, I didn't, I didn't spend as much time as I would have liked talking about native native Americans either. Um, so um, what I will say though, is, is the increase in um, hatred, hate crimes against Asian Americans, which is similar to the increase in hate crimes against Muslim Americans after September 11th, um, just speaks to how widespread and deep this problem is. And what this is what happens when, um, again, largely because of Republican obstruction, uh, our Justice Department focuses on um, Islamic terrorism, for example, abroad, instead of focusing on um, white, predominantly male domestic terrorism. It's been, it's been almost excluded from examination for decades now, and it has been on the rise for decades now. And now we're, we're at a place where it is um, completely acceptable in certain quarters of uh, people who have power. We have, uh, we cannot forget that we have at least 10 sitting senators and at least three quarters of the Republican caucus in the house who actively engaged in this, in um, an insurrection against our country. So uh, mm -hmm. we're in big trouble. Yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, I just it all sort of is subsumed in the the myth of white supremacy, which is uh, covered extensively in the book. Uh, and I, th you know, it's its roots, I think, come more from some places than others. Uh, but it definitely uh, does trickle down and uh, impact anyone who is not white. You know, I think, you know, just this question from Alexis, and I'm, I was thinking about it, you know, obviously you bring it up in the book and the similarities between, you know, the Hitler and the rise of Hitler and, of course, this rise of the Trump administration and Donald himself. But, you know, even thinking back to the concentration camps of, you know, Nazi Germany, we had, you know, internment camps in, I believe it was San Francisco area, you know, California, Northern California with Asian Asians. And that gets left out of the, the conversation in this country. And it's the same. It's along those same lines. We don't like to think that we as a people or as a country would have done those same atrocities in our own land and on our own soil. And we did. And that needs to be part of the conversation and part of the forgiveness and the, the healing moving forward as well. Well, we did it for 400 years. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I'm sorry, the, the American South was, well, actually the entire, all of the colonies for a while, but the American South after the country was a country was a closed fascist state in which right. the worst atrocities were being committed on a daily basis against one group of people, in, mostly to terrorize them uh, in order to keep them from voting and engaging. Because right. imagine what the, how the South would have been transformed if Black Americans had been able to vote after the Civil War ended. Well, yeah. And Mary, you know, you talked about how the, the post-Reconstruction um, pseudoscience and racialization uh, uh, kind of lent to making large swaths of Americans sort of numb to 
family separations at the border, for example. So I mean, it's it, it's all sort of stemming from from the same from the same place. Yeah, and you know, to to Dana's point earlier as well, by training children who then become adults who train their children to see another group of people who are no different at all. I mean, biologically, genetically, as less than it kind of softens the ground for doing that for other groups of people, which is again, why it was, I mean, there wasn't a lot of uproar about what it was, what we did to Japanese Americans um, during World War II. Um, And it extended to poor white people uh, because as I also write about tens of thousands of women and men, poor women and men mostly were sterilized legally against their will. But, you know, uh, in the early decades of the 20th century, because they were considered morons. And that was literally the technical term. And that was a term used by Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was allegedly this champion of civil rights. So, um, yeah, it it is a very slippery slope and it's a slope. It's it's a slope we've been sliding down, you know, for a very, very, very long time. And um, I think it is why it's so easy, so easy for some people to be totally, not just totally cool with cruelty, but apparently really enjoying it. And it, it's a quite disturbing phenomenon. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, you you talk, and here's, here's kind of where I want to wrap this up. We have a few minutes left. And, and you talk in the book about how we are at a precipice right now. We are at, we have an opportunity to reimagine the United States. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, with some of the things going on, build back better, for example, um, where it would, I think, be a mistake to go back to how it was. We should go forward to a new place, but we can't do that without looking back. Absolutely. And um, we never have, you know, war crimes were allowed to go unpunished um, from the Civil War on, uh, including the Iraq War, um you know, and uh, we're seeing the results of that, of letting um, financial criminals go, white collar criminals go. I mean, I read the most disturbing statistic today. Um, some very small number, like 600 or something, six, 600 of the richest people in this country owe 90% of stock shares. Jesus. Mm-hmm. So there is the in, income inequality is is greater than it has ever been, including the robber baron era. And that's all related, you know, because there then claims that there aren't enough resources can be used to limit our attempts to try to make people's lives better, to educate them, to, to level the playing field, to give reparations, whatever. It's incredible. Uh, well, here's here's hoping um, that we take advantage of this moment uh, because it may be our last. If if I, if I can end it on a high note. Yeah. <laughs> All right, everyone, have a great day. Thanks for listening to the last episode. Oh, yes, I hope you have a, a wonderful week. Uh, but uh, seriously, thank you so much, uh, Mary, for coming on, answering these questions. Thanks to our patrons who submitted, and thanks for being patrons. You make this show possible. Uh, please get the fascists off the bestseller list and order 
the reckoning by mary trump even just to look cool and have it on your bookshelf uh it's but it truly is it's an important book um and you know it 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 can't it it's tough to get through but it's it's just so important uh that we all get it and read it so i appreciate your time today dana do you have any final thoughts mary final thoughts i appreciate your time as well that's my final thought and honestly, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to read the book because I know it is difficult. And, um, you know, a lot of people aren't going to like the mirror being held up. And I, and I do just want to say, though, that um, I'm not I'm not throwing stones here. I'm in the same boat. You know, I was raised by racist, not not racist, active racist, but people who were racist uh, because I grew up in a society that's racist and I was surrounded by white people pro- predominantly and exposed to racist media. So, you know, I've been fighting the same the same battle um, my whole life to be aware of that, to be aware of the privilege that extends to me. And that's what, that's what we need to do. It's not about blame. It's about taking responsibility. Like even if it isn't our fault, we have to deal with the consequences and we have to become responsible for them. Just, be, you know, just like if we were abused as children and you grow up to be somebody who has you know, rate problems with uh, impulse control. Unfortunately, it's not your fault, but you have to take responsibility for it. Um, and that's kind of where we are. So I, I so appreciate uh, your time and your generosity. And um, hopefully next time we can talk about things that aren't quite so horrible. Yeah. Agreed. Thank you so much, everybody. Uh, we'll see you on, on the beans tomorrow. Uh, until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been Allison Gill. I've been Dana Goldberg. And she's been married to have. And that. I still <laughs> and, that. and she still is. And this has been the MSW Book Club. Join us starting November 7th for Here Right Matters with Alex Vindman. Thank you. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.